0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Burns. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here on this fine Wednesday, October 14th. Blaze Media is the website that is theblaze.com for my writings. I know a lot of you have asked me, Where my articles are, they've migrated from conservativereview.com, where we are going to redo the Liberty scorecard. I know a lot of you have requested that it be put back up. There's just some technical issues that are being worked out. It has not been abolished. We are here to stay because, frankly, we need somebody calling the balls and strikes. What is conservatism? What should be done? What's the truth about the virus? What's the truth about many policies? Healthcare. Crime, all sorts of things that we don't have leadership from Republicans on. What is the role of the judiciary? So we really have a lot to cover. We're going to try to do a little bit of each thing today. I'll start off with the confirmation hearings. And I must say this just from the onset. Obviously, yesterday, I gave a broader view that I want to expand on today about what is the role of the judiciary, of the Supreme Court, of the other branches of government in constitutional interpretation. And that is the central question that is not being asked and really not being addressed at all. See, a lot of people are frustrated on all sides that the nominees don't want to answer the most important things we need to know. Oh, I don't want to prejudge litigation what do you mean? Our whole society is going to depend on it. As Amy Klobuchar said yesterday. It matters the our, our whole society gets decided. But that's where she's wrong. I have no problem with a judge being cagey. Because truth be told, it is all about litigation. It doesn't affect the whole of the people, as we said yesterday. And if they try to affect it, it's for the other branches of government. So I want to say that I have in general been impressed with Amy Barrett to the extent that she has not ceded any ground. What bothered me the entire time, if you remember my commentary during the Gorsuch and Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, was that they continuously ceded ground. I was like, wait a minute, they're agreeing to a lot of very liberal premises that that are very problematic, and they're simply not true. And people are like, well, they're just lying, basically, to get through confirmation. I was saying, well, I don't know. I mean, the left does that, but I think our guys are really going to be that way. And I was proven right. Whereas if you notice, Amy is not ceding any ground. She's she's totally being cagey. And she is not ceding any premise. Oh, this is racist, right? Well, she she won't cede it. And I got to give Senator Leahy credit. (laughs) I think he asked the best question. Of the entire hearing, yes, uber liberal Senator Pat Leahy, he asked Barrett eight hundred pound gorilla question in the room that I, I I was hoping would be asked all these years: Is the Supreme Court the final say? He actually asked it. Now he was it was more in the context of like Trump thwarting the Supreme Court. It wasn't so much the broad fundamental question. Obviously, everything with them has to be about Trump. But he basically said, you know, there are those that are saying that the Supreme Court is only the final word to the lower courts, but not to the other branches of government. Now, that should be a very simple question to answer. Now, I would have thought for sure, and I was really expecting her to say, as I remember Kavanaugh saying the context of the question to him, I think, was a little bit different, but he said very clearly, Supreme Court's the final say. She did not say that. She declined to say that. And she, in fact, said, look, Federalist 78. Courts have neither forced nor, nor will to enforce it. They they rely upon the, the other branches for the efficacy of their rulings. And that's all she said. Now, look, I would have rather... Again, she'd take it a step further and really indulge the issue and give a whole lecture as I did yesterday and how it can't be that they're the final say because, you know, then it would be the courts thwarting the other branches if they decide not to listen to them too. So is that a violation of separation of powers? But again, in the world we live in, they're not going to give more information than they feel they need to give. So I was pretty impressed That she actually refused to affirm the Supreme Court as being supreme over the other branches. And in fact, would say, look, you know, it's Federalist 78. So I like what I'm seeing from her. But again, I just want to reiterate that it's it's, it's a day late, a dollar short. Had we been pushing people like her for the last 30 years, we would be in a better position. But because we blew our wad on Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, we really only would wind up having three conservatives on the court, not five. So I'm just sorry to tell you, I don't think much is going to change around the edges, maybe. But the left is getting more and more aggressive in the litigation they're putting in the courts and the lower courts and what the lower courts are willing to do. And we just don't have the votes to overturn that. So once again, I just want to reiterate my view that it's better to use this time as an opportunity to blow this wide open and say how, you know, Democrats are the ones that created this notion of the courts being the end all. They're saying, we're so worried. We're so worried they're going to abolish Obamacare. We're so worried they're going to do this. Well, we're so worried you're abolishing election law, immigration law, sovereignty, society, life. Let's call it even. Let's call it even. And again, that was our message from yesterday. And I think that still stands. I think it's very vital. So that's with the latest on on the Barrett hearings. Again, my view is everyone's wondering, like the Democrats don't seem to be particularly rude. And actually, most of the engagements are pretty thoughtful. You know the, the Democrats, of course, are dense, and obviously, Hirono, that that sadistic animal from from Hawaii, she, she's always going to do her thing, and and the senators want their sound bites and their moments. They're not fundamentally trying to derail the nomination. That that's what I believe. Their calculus is, um, you know, whether they're right or not is a different story. But they think they're going to win a historic blowout, not just the presidency, but really blow it out in Congress and state elections. So they're like, dude, we'll let them have the, the seat. Unlike Republicans who, when they have all the political power, they're like, there's nothing we can do. The district judge said we can't do it. They don't care. They, they get political power. They'll do what they want. Screw the courts. And at the first sign of trouble, if there would be trouble from the Supreme Court, they'll just delegitimize it. And everything that we wanted to do. Oh, and by the way, I just want to say, Barrett brought up Lincoln pushing back against courts. So, I was very impressed. I must say, that really got me. So um, you know, obviously, on the political thing, the one thing she did was the the, the Floyd thing, but that's nothing legal. It's just like you know what wh- what are you gonna do? you you're, You can't reinvent the wheel of Republicans failing to articulate what did and did not happen there. So it's p- people are convinced that he was killed by the cop when, in fact, it's a straight up fact from the medical examiner he died of a drug overdose and he couldn't breathe beforehand. And clearly, based on the autopsy of the neck, the officer was not putting that much pressure on. But, but you know, what, what are you going to do? She's like, so she figured she just play up the racial card. No, oh, I have black kids. And we we cried together over it. But in terms of the legal stuff, I'm just telling you, you remember I watched those hearings carefully and everyone was like they were appalled at the way, you know, Kavanaugh was treated even before the whole um, fabricated sexual allegations. And meanwhile, I was appalled by the things he was saying and and the ground he was seeding. Um, And and a lot of people missed that. So I I really do not see her seeding a lot of ground. She's being extremely cagey. Like even with stuff like that, that's racially sensitive. She's like, well, you know, uh, the canons of judicial ethics. I can't (laughs) talk about it. Um, Whereas other ones like, oh, yeah, yes, this is this is settled. This is yes, yes. You know, remember when Kavanaugh disagreed with Judge Henderson on the Garza case that illegal aliens are as if they are not present in the country and have no rights. He said openly, I disagree with that. That was a very big problem. So I'm not seeing any of that here. And I think we're off to a good start. But I want to jump back to the virus. And again, as I've noted, it ties in. Because the same courts that, refu- that, that that are creating these insane racial rights refuse to recognize unalienable rights to serve God, to assemble, to work and earn a living, to walk freely unrestricted without your lungs being covered. There's a lot of new studies, a lot of new data points I could point to and we're going to go on and off. We can't do data shows every single day, even though I could, just based on the information we have. But I want to talk today about the sinful behavior of what is going on among the corona fascists. I want you to take a listen to this clip from Dr. Scott Atlas. He was on with Laura Ingram last night on Fox News. And he was going on and on about the missed cancer screenings and the missed stroke diagnosis and all the collateral damage, education, and poverty. All for nothing. Only pain, no gain. It's not working to stem the tide of coronavirus at all. And then Laura Ingram gave an, uh, an opportunity to take a du- direct swipe at Fauci. Like She asked him, why, why doesn't Fauci ever talk about any of the collateral damage? Why is it always this tunnel vision? And I thought for sure, you know, he's he's not going to criticize Fauci. Not only did he criticize him, he took it to the next level. Take a listen. Why don't we hear Dr. Fauci ever addressing the larger American patient? Do you ever ask him that? Do you ever talk to him and say, you never talk about these other you know, other circumstances that have have been created by these lockdowns. And I'm telling you, this guy, Peter Hotess on CNN today, he said he's a vaccine developer. He said, get ready. I'm telling my own family, get ready for lockdowns this winter. That's what they're saying.
1: I, I can say this. History will record the faces of the public health expertise as some of the most sinful, egregious, epic failures in the history of public policy. They have killed people with their lack of understanding and their lack of caring about not just the impact of cases of COVID-19, a virus that the overwhelming majority of people do well in, notwithstanding, of course, we're not underestimating 200,000 Americans who died. That's tragic, but these people have been a gross failure because they never cared to consider the impact of the policy itself, and the policy itself has been a complete epic failure. And honestly, some people say a crime against humanity. These people should be
0: held accountable to what they said. Folks, I have never heard of anyone like Atlas. Every, even friends of mine that get into the administration, they're really good, they all get gun-shy. And they all kind of get sucked in. He is just like, he does not hold back. He is awesome. Sinful, egregious, epic failures in the history of the public policy. They've killed people with their lack of understanding. It's a crime against humanity. And he was directly talking about Fauci, although he didn't mention his name, but it was in response to Laura's question. And that's what it is. It is a crime against humanity. It's a crime against humanity, this whole concept of public health, that we're going to upend the entire I would say, sane order of the world, the natural order of things, as Adam Smith would say, for the public good. We're going to abrogate private rights for the public good. And what that does is you destroy every facet of mental, physical health, economic well-being. I mean, even ironically, vaccinations for other things all for a solo, just tunnel vision, vacuum focus on one thing. After there's six months of evidence, it doesn't work by their own admission because they're panicking. And this is what's so sinful. Because they're not consistent in their own view. What If you notice what they do... Is they basically throw as much panic porn as, as, as possible. This virus could do anything. It's deadlier. It will get you. There's no immunity. That's a new thing with it. There's no nothing. I mean, so then at least just be consistent. We're all going to die. But no, they give you this false sense of security. They they throw it into this one narrow thing of, well, if you do this, then, then, you know, you don't have to worry. And the problem is the panic porn works against their resolutions. So they're like, have the restrictions and wear a mask. Otherwise, you'll kill people. And then it spreads beyond belief. And they're like, wear a mask. Otherwise, it'll kill. What what do you mean? You just said that. Likewise, the, the, the new panic porn now is about There's no immunity. See, the problem they're having is this. They're basically cornered into checkmate. Because, you see, they won the debate without having a debate, of course, and censoring any opposition. They got what they wanted. It's not like we had our way of doing things and they're like, well, look, it's spreading too much. Do what we want. They got what they want. And it failed by their own admission, by their own demonstration of, of panic at this juncture so many months into the most draconian and, and, and universal compliance to their draconian measures. I mean, it's truly shocking whether you agree with it or disagree with it, the way society has changed so quickly, so swiftly, and it doesn't work. So more and more, it's getting saturation, and more and more, herd immunity is going to happen. So that's why they have no choice but to say, nope, this virus is somehow different from other respiratory viruses There's no immunity. You're going to keep getting it again. So suddenly, notice how whenever we have this debate, it's at that moment where these cases come out, like examples of what they're proving. So it's like, kids don't spread. Oh, no, I have cases of kids spreading. Suddenly, suddenly, you know, like when it's an academic issue, we have like, you know, 15 countries say it doesn't spread. Suddenly it becomes a debate here. And suddenly they find cases where it supposedly spread. You know, masks don't work. 20 years of, of literature on that. Suddenly we find it works. Very convenient. It's the same thing here. Suddenly we find cases of reinfection. That's the new game they're playing. Unverifiable claims. Now, this is a mixture of several sleights of hand that you need to be aware of. And we're going to be covering this in greater detail because it's a very important issue. This is really how they want to win the panic Super Bowl. By saying you can never achieve immunity. And you're, this is always going to be a threat. So let me first say. Before why they're wrong. I want to say. Why if they're right. They're acting sinful. Because they are saying. Basically we need to lock down. Until there's a vaccine. But if you're going to. And, and, and we're like well. You're going to have herd immunity by the time you even get the vaccine anyway. And no matter what you do. That's the only reality. And they're saying no. You can't get herd immunity from this virus. We see reinfection. If that were true, that works against their entire vaccine. It's a lie. Then nothing works. Because the entire premise of a vaccine is predicated on herd herd immunity. It's hard enough to find a vaccine that quickly if, if herd immunity works. If you're telling me herd immunity doesn't work, that if you had the virus, you could get reinfected and very sick again. You had a full-blown case of it. You had a hospitalization clinical level of it, and you're telling me you can get reinfected and get seriously sick again. Dude, the, the, a vaccine is not going to work for that then. Because the, the, the broader principle, principle of the vaccine is to somehow expose you to it without really getting you sick from it, and then that gives you immunity. So it's a win-win. That's why a vaccine is the best thing if you could if you could possibly achieve that, if you believe that you could achieve that. And without collateral damage, of course, which at this point is a big if. But if you're telling me, even if you seriously got it, you're not immune to it, then we're screwed. But they can't tell anyone we're screwed for the remainder of your life. You're going to have to do this because there's nothing we can do and you're always going to get it and die from it. Because then everyone's going to laugh it off. They have to offer an avenue, but that avenue is refuted by the argument they're making. Now, let's get to the argument. How many verifiable cases do we have of someone actually getting the virus in a verifiable way with symptoms? And then they were reinfected and they got seriously ill from it again. Okay. They have this case in the Netherlands they're pointing out to, but she was 89 on chemotherapy. So remember, again... That's, there's nothing, nothing new under the sun. So it's a little bit of a distortion on both ends. It's a distortion of what herd immunity means and a distortion of other viruses. So they exaggerate the extent of reinfection and who it's in and under what circumstances. And then they obfuscate the fact that it's no different from any other virus. People think, oh, I'm immune. I mean, you basically are, but like anything in life, it's 99.9. You know, there are exceptions. And, and, and the most prominent ones are immunocompromised people. And that's the whole lie of the vaccine. Google, I think it's a CNBC or Bloomberg article, just Google vaccine won't work for immunocompromised, obese people. That's the whole enchilada. I mean, for other people, everyone I know is getting this as a cold or less. I mean, you know, less than typical things you get throughout the year. So, yeah, I mean, you don't need a vaccine for that. The people you need it for. I got news for you. It's like the flu vaccine, it won't really work. I mean, if you're bound to get a serious version of it and your body can't ward it off, the vaccine won't be able to do a better job. So chemotherapy destroys your immune system. That's all. The whole point of herd immunity is your body is immune because it built up the ability to block it. But if you're taking chemotherapy, it works against that. I mean, that that's just the reality of life, and that's true of many other viruses, which is why so many of them, unfortunately, in the Valiant battle against cancer, wind up dying from other things. A lot of the cases, remember, are false positives. It's either on the first round or the second round, right? So, there's so many false positives now, do we know that you actually, so, oh, this guy, he had and he tested positive. Well, who says it's not a false positive? And then number two is, it could be a real positive. We talked about the notional Nebulous positives. So remember that we talked about, you know, obviously the 40 cycle thresholds, the amplification. That a lot of people getting it, they're not really getting much of a disease from it. So now reinfection sounds very scary. But let me ask you a question. If you were to have a similar type of test for, let's say, mumps, and I pick mumps because mumps is something we all get in MMR shots, multiple MMR shots, and it was essentially eradicated, but recently there has been a resurgence. The media won't tell you. A good chunk of that has to do with illegal immigration, which is why the border states have and border areas have had the worst hits of it. I've documented that. Texas Department of Public Health has, has a lot of good information on that. But I guarantee you, with the resurgence of mumps in this country, now you might be like, well, okay, I have a vaccine, so I don't have a problem. And that's true, you don't. But if I were to test 900,000 people in the United States alone, forget about globally, for mumps every single freaking day, I guarantee you there are going to be people who downright have the MMR, plenty of people, A relatively small, or very small percentage, but, you know, out of numbers that large, it will be enough enough cases that you could, you know, disseminate it in the media and create panic that the MMR shot is not working and they have mumps. Now, the answer is they test positive for it, but the vaccine works to ward off the symptoms, just like your immune system without a vaccine, if you were infected previously, will work. So these are the sleight of hands. Remember, we had the most comprehensive study from Singapore showing that robust T cell immunity, not just from people who had SARS CoV 2, because it's new. So, you know, there's no, you can't definitively say there's 20 years of immunity from it, right? Because we only have a few months. But they found people with other coronaviruses from years ago that had cross reactivity. Robust T-cell immunity from other viruses. So the big thing people forget is that the T-cell immunity, right? So um, they found that basically what they did, it was a Singapore study published in, in Nature magazine. It's been peer-reviewed. They took 23 patients who recovered from SARS-1, right? They had that in Singapore in 2003. All 23 retained memory T cells induced by the original pathogen still in their systems. So 17 years later, there was immunity to COVID-19 from people who didn't even have COVID-19. They had SARS-1. That's unbelievable. Okay, it's 100%. Small again, small sample size, but it is 23 It's 23 out of 23. And again, to be clear, that doesn't mean that they could never test positive for it. It means that it, it, the body works, it wards off the symptoms. Would it ward off every symptom? Could you feel something going on? Could you feel a sniffle maybe? But the panic that they're trying to sow is that, for example, and I know I know he's worried about it. I have an uncle that, like I said, he was in the New York area when it was bad. He got one of those bad cases. He has scarring on his lungs. It's bad. Now, the doctor says that there's going to be even with that, it shouldn't affect him. You know, that's a whole nother panic porn. But I'm just saying that's a really bad case. They're trying to scare people like him that you could go through that again and that there is no evidence and there's no reason based on everything we know about this and other coronaviruses and other vi- respiratory viruses that somehow this should defy all rules. And if you're telling me that people who had SARS-1 17 years later, 100% of them had at least that partial immunity enough to ward off any, anywhere near clinical level symptoms... So most certainly, if you downright had a bad case of this very virus, you're not going to get another bad case of this very virus. And, and again, as, as Dr. Andy Bostom has been on the show several times, uh, a cardiovascular epidemiologist, he has said n- numerous times that what herd immunity means, it doesn't mean eradication. That, that's another level. It means that there's enough people that have between full partial immunity Inherent existing immunity before even having it, um, not vulnerable to begin with. You put those numbers together, and it breaks the back of the of the virus. It's very low, very rare death rate. It kind of percolates slowly. That's what it is. It doesn't mean that nothing exists. It essentially becomes like a bad cold, which we have endemic in our ecosystem, biological ecosystem, you know, forever. So that's that's the story. And by the way, in that same study, they studied 36 convalescent SARS-CoV-2 patients, and they found that they had produced those similar T cells. So those T cells that SARS-1 had that worked against SARS-2, they actually studied people that recovered from SARS-2, and they found those same T cells. So the notion that somehow those T cells are not going to work for the amount of time as SARS-1 would work against SARS 2 is really I mean that, that that is a very novel idea. That is a very novel idea. You know, in some viruses you could detect the antibodies longer than others. Coronaviruses appear to wane quicker, but that's that's kind of that's just a symbol. It's not the inherent immunity. That's the way we detect it doesn't mean you don't have it. And in fact, the Singapore study shows you do have it. So I wanted to get that out of the way. That is a very important panic porn. But the more they do this, and the more they scare the heck out of people, I mean, just think about what's going on here. Think about the fact that according to Healthcare Cost Institute, mammograms fell 77% in the height of the panic. And even now they're still down 23%. So all of the good public health things, the few good things that came out of it that actually work are being tossed overboard for the good of public health. And that is an idolatry. That is an idolatry that you don't know what to do with your own body you don't have the right to make decisions for your own body your own existence is a threat to yourself and to other people unless you do as we say because we are experts that is the core of that philosophy it's sinful behavior it's rooted in the nazi regime you know everyone's comparing things to nazis these days but that that's actually really what they started out with before they went after Jews, they went after undesirable people. They were very concerned about public health. They had tons of these measures for sterilization on, on, on their own, you know, all their people. Then eventually they went on to Jews. And obviously everyone knows about Joseph Mengele and, you know, all the experiments they did in the concentration camps. But um, I wanted to share with you. Just, just a sliver of this sinful behavior that occurs when you you go and you focus on a vacuum in playing God on one issue where there's mounting evidence, it doesn't work anyway and it causes such collateral damage. This is from one of my uh, fellow colleagues at rationalground.com, Carl Um, He is an engineer and a lawyer. Very smart guy um, out a Denver, Colorado. He published this at a website called Complete Colorado. And you can Google this Complete Colorado Dierenbach, State's Reaction to COVID is Killing Coloradans. According to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 438 Coloradans died from COVID between June 14th and September 26th. Heartbreaking as that is, it is not the most catastrophic thing happening in Colorado. The worst tragedy is that in the same period of time, at least 1,038 Coloradans have died from Colorado's reaction to COVID. That bears repeating. Deaths from a reaction to COVID are outpacing COVID deaths by more than 2 to 1. Colorado is literally killing itself. Regarding the source of my claim, the CDC compiles data concerning excess deaths happening across the country. Excess deaths are deaths above the CDC's estimate of the number of deaths that are expected for a particular week. For example, CDC data shows that for the week of June 27th, the average expected number of deaths for Colorado is 730. Yet in Colorado, we saw 885 or 155 excess deaths. Now, right off the bat, you might say, "Okay, well, that's because of COVID. Nope. That week, there were 23 COVID deaths. 23, meaning that there were 132 Excess non-COVID fatalities. It is truly astounding. The causes of the excess deaths include isolation, fear, and despair. As to isolation, the CDC data shows that over 200 of the non-COVID excess deaths are among Alzheimer's and dementia sufferers, likely in long-term care facilities where visits are restricted and they are denied physical contact with visitors. I know this from people I hear, even even their own spouse. Uh, These patients uh, benefit greatly from stimulation. Without it, they can deteriorate quickly. Um... Deaths from fear can be seen in the more than 300 excess non-COVID deaths from circulatory disease, such as heart attacks and strokes. Um, patients delaying ER visits or staying home instead of seeking help. That's certainly a big issue. Um, deaths from cancer are exceeding levels. Deaths of despair, such as suicides, are increasing. Um, and the tragically, the excess deaths skew toward the young. Since the start of the pandemic, Colorado has seen just under 100 deaths with COVID among young People younger than 50, and again, a lot of those are BS, Um, while the CDC data shows over 600 excess deaths of people under 45, this points to over 500 needless people under 45 dying due to the reaction. Fear kills. Deaths are not the only story. The quality of life for 5.8 million Coloradans has been severely diminished. There will be no going back and making up for missed proms, graduations. There will be no making up for the loneliness we forced on our seniors and single people. When you tear a several month hole in someone's life, the damage can be incalculable. That last chance to have a baby, the small window to hold a newborn grandchild. You know, I I, I could only imagine. It's shocking how long this has gone on because my daughter, the youngest daughter was born in the beginning of april so towards the beginning of this it's hard to believe but she's 6 months old now and had our family practiced the panic porn like so many others i know my parents would have never been able to be with her and luckily we didn't we didn't deal with that crap because we understood that you know the notion of asymptomatic spreading is very rare And then you add that on to a baby spreading is remarkably rare if ever even the case. Then the fact that even my parents being 70, they're not 90 and they they don't have underlying conditions and they're certainly not in in, in a long term care facility. (laughs) My father ain't never going to one of those things. Um, He's pretty vibrant at his age, um, travels the world for, for his job so, you know, you look at the math, the number, the, the, the death rate for people like that, if you take out the underlying conditions, you take out LTC, um, the death rate is remarkably low, even at the age of 70. It's because it's very much weighted towards those groups of people, even at that age. It's more a status in LTC, a.k.a. underlying conditions thing than an age thing. And we understood that. But again, folks. This is what we're doing. beautifully written and this is this is colorado but it's true of every state it's true of pretty much 40 to 43 of the states i would say in this country there are more excess deaths from the reaction to covid sometimes twice as many three times as many exponentially more years of life lost to younger people than from covid And then even in the places like New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, maybe Michigan, a couple others in the Northeast. Even there, it's only because the virus was just worse and it killed more people. There's no evidence. The, The same principle applies that the lockdown just didn't help. Which leads me to the next point. And that is a bombshell concession from, what's his name? Andrew Cuomo, another sadistic buffoon. But I got to give him props for being honest. He admitted the central problem with what is going on. And this demonstrates more than ever why virtue signaling is not only no virtue, it's the most sinful vice you could imagine. Because it's to obfuscate and ignore science, it's to ignore fundamental rights and laws and morality, all to score political points and to show people that you're doing something about something that is out of your hands, but that something you're doing is not helping, it's only harming and killing more people. Basically, a lot of you by now are familiar with this whole saga going on in New York, where Cuomo singled out um, a Jewish community in Brooklyn, certain zip codes in Brooklyn, where he said are having problems, and he is going to, you know, he he sent out the health department to issue citations all over the place. He forced them to close their synagogues, or he said that you can only have ten people, which you know, obviously, essentially means you can't be open, closing businesses. Again, everything is okay under the guise of public health, even though constitutionally that's not true. And I don't know if he knew it was being recorded or not. I don't know what the story is. Um, but either way, the the audio is out there. He was on a call last Tuesday with local Jewish community leaders and I think several rabbis of large synagogues there that were affected. And a local Jewish publication posted 30 minutes of audio. I want you to take a listen to this audio right here.
1: Rabbi, I'll ask, uh, let me make comment and let us, Dr. Zucker. I don't disagree with you. Uh, and look, I am 100% frank and candid. Uh, this is not a highly nuanced, sophisticated response, this is a fear driven response not a policy being written by a scalpel. This is a, a policy being cut by uh, a hatchet. It's just a very blunt uh, I didn't propose this, you know, it was proposed by the mayor uh, in the city I'm trying to uh, sharpen it and make it better but it's out of fear people see the numbers going up uh, close everything, close everything and uh, It's not the best way to do it, but it is uh, a fear driven response. The The virus scares people. Hopefully we get the numbers down in the zip codes, the anxiety comes down and then we can have a smarter, more tailored approach. Your point is right. Why close every school? Why don't you test the schools? And close the ones that have a problem. I know, but uh, first I don't know that we have the resources to do that now. But I can tell you honestly, uh, the the fear is too high uh, to do anything other than uh, let's do everything we can to get the infection rate down now. Uh, close the doors, close the windows. That's where we are.
0: So, guys. This was in response to a question by one of the rabbis there where he basically said, look, I mean, you know, these restrictions, the benchmarks are so arbitrary. They're so draconian. You can never even achieve them given the testing regime. Um, I'm just paraphrasing what what um, was said before Cuomo's comments. And and he said like you know we're even closing preschools and the preschools there's literally no evidence of spreading we haven't had any cases in our preschools here like why should that be a part of it let's let's at least tailor it to what's going on and that's when he admitted it's not highly nuanced it's not sophisticated it's a fear driven response it's not written with a scalpel it's a hatchet and he admitted He tried to shunt it off on the mayor, said, well, is de Blasio doing it? I'm trying to make it better. But people are fearful. They see numbers going up and they say, close everything, close everything. It's not the best way to do it, but it's a fear driven response. And then he said, the virus scares people. The fear is too high to do anything other than let's do everything we can to get the infection rate down. Close the doors, close the windows. That's what we are. So he admits that this is a middle-age, primitive, sophomoric way of thinking run by juvenile fear that has no efficacy. But what he doesn't talk about is there's one thing if it doesn't work, but it makes people feel better. But what if it, while it's not working, it destroys human lives? And again, you know, we're looking at a hardcore concrete data on excess Alzheimer's or accelerated Alzheimer's deaths, cancer deaths, heart deaths, stroke deaths, untreated care of all sorts of ailments that go untreated and then become too severe to, to treat once you discover it, the drug overdoses, the mental health crisis. But again, as my buddy out of Colorado mentioned, the lost life experience, you say two, three weeks, okay, whatever. But we are on the seventh month with them saying this is going to be years. That is killing people. For a lot of people, that's going to be the remaining time of their life, ironically. You can never plug that hole. That cost is incalculable. All to make people feel better. The other thing Cuomo obfuscates here is that people are only fearful because bastards like him are are perpetuating the fear. If he were to get up there and, and say what we're saying as a Democrat, Republicans aren't going to bash him. It, it takes a Democrat to do it because if a Republican does it, then the Democrats will say, no, it's wrong and spread fear even more to score points. But if we would all get together, this thing would be over with. But isn't it funny, folks? How fundamental, getting back to the courts, the courts have said for years that when you mess with the First Amendment, it has to be narrowly tailored and implemented in the most limited manner, right? The term that's always used is the least restrictive means of achieving a compelling state interest. And he just admitted It's not a compelling interest because it's fear. It doesn't work. And far from being narrowly tailored and least restrictive, it's not a scalpel, it's a hatchet. Taking a hatchet to constitutional rights. That's what he's admitting. Even the Jacobson case that everyone likes to cite that doesn't apply here for a number of reasons, as well as the courts have moved away from that, For 60 years, they still say that public health measures cannot be enacted, quote, in such an arbitrary, unreasonable manner or might go so far beyond what was reasonably required for the safety of the public. How ironic that it was New York Supreme Court in 1856. They had this like public quarantine law. And they talked about, you know the need and power for states to deal with outbreaks. But then they said, it can never be permitted that even for the sake of the public health, any local inferior border tribunal shall repeal statutes, suspend the operation of the constitution, and infringe all the natural rights of the citizen. Very simple. And that's what I've been saying. You could quarantine people that have, are known to have the virus, but the notion that you could quarantine an entire society indefinitely. I mean, nothing matters until this issue is dealt with at a legal, scientific, and moral level. Now, thankfully, the science is on our side, but I want to make it very clear. There are certain things that even if you had some sort of evidence of efficacy, there are certain things you just can't do to another human being. That is just not okay. You know, I think we'd have a much healthier and safer society if we did a lot of things that are my way. You know? I got married at 23. Had four kids. Well, I mean, reams of studies have shown that if everyone would do what I did in life, that would cure, like, everything. (laughs) Poverty, delinquent children, out of wedlock stuff, crime. I mean, you name it. Welfare, use. Can't force people to do that. And that's what we're doing. We are downright forcing people to take affirmative actions to their life and liberty that are destructive to them. Not just, hey, you cannot affirmatively do this thing. We are actively saying you must take an action. And this is where we are. This is truly evil and sinful behavior that is being perpetrated by these buffoonish people. And I mean buffoonish. Truly, truly sick people. I mean, when you just look at that breast cancer screening, debt, it's unbelievable. It's so scary. There's another report out. With all the isolation, people are getting hooked on alcohol in addition to drugs. Military suicides have increased by 20% this year. And... Mind you, it's not because of COVID, because they're young. It's because they're basically treating them like prisoners. And that's where we are. And the irony is, you know, amidst it all, no one talks about the 800-pound gorilla in the room, no uh, pun intended, which is obesity. That's really the big thing here. Because that induces a lot of heart disease and diabetes. Not all of it comes from that, but a, but a lot of it does. And that's those are all the conditions that are vulnerable to um, getting a serious case of, of, of this virus. So I'm just saying, I mean, if you want to prevent it, that would actually be more scientific an approach to have government mandates on obesity. But then again, as I noted before, there are certain things you just can't do to people you can't tell someone how much they can eat. And again, I mean, it's undeniable that certain diets and certain lifestyles create obesity and create a cascading effect of, you know, I could say you're, you're stressing the hospitals and, and it it really does. I mean, it's, I mean, if you look at the cascading effects of obesity, it's undeniable. Obesity is horrendous. Some of it's genetic and not some people's fault. Often it is lifestyle choice not the majority of time. But at the end of the day, even with that solid evidence that they are engaging in harmful behavior to themselves and really potentially society, it is what it is. God created us in an earth, on a world to live with other people, and you cannot rule over other people. It's funny, with Cuomo attacking Jews, the foundation of freedom is obviously from the Jewish holiday Passover and the experience that led to the creation of the Jewish nation, the giving of the Bible at Mount Sinai, Moses, the scene that's depicted, as Ted Cruz said in the confirmation hearings, on the wall above the Supreme Court bench. In the original Hebrew letters, the Ten Commandments. I am the God that took you out of Egypt from slavery. And the principle that was established from there thereon, although it wasn't abided by for many centuries thereafter. And really not f- fought valiantly until the American Revolution was that no human being has the right to rule over someone else. You don't have the right to rule over me. You could bind together as a society and deal with certain public questions, certainly defend your sovereignty and your territory from invaders as private property, but you cannot rule over the other people in that society. You could determine different procedures, policies, but I can't rule over you to the point that I compel you to take actions against your own dignity of your face, indefinitely, everywhere, preclude you from earning a living. It's amazing to watch how the Democrats are so... I mean, they're just indignant about the prospect of taking away your right to Obamacare subsidies. Isn't it funny how the same people that believe you have a right to a handout don't believe you have the right to the fruits of your labor? So you don't have the right to be able to open up your business without government interference. But you do have the right to demand someone else pay for your um your stuff cuz we're all, all in this together in their mind see a government that's powerful enough to take from a and give to b they're also powerful enough to say that b is a threat to a you see what i mean the subsidy side the res- restriction regulation side are two sides of a coin that you and someone else are affected to the point where your life must be controlled you must give him money you must wear a mask because of him this is sinful idolatry and 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 I know there's there's christian leaders there's jewish leaders all sorts of people that have been bought in to this garbage even people that call themselves conservatives and i've seen it where i live I know a lot of you have seen this as well. Just recognize that there is no foundation in the Bible that can support the sinful behavior of public health experts. Anyway, folks, I didn't get to some of the crime stories I wanted to get to. Um, We are definitely going to watch the way the hearings play out. I'll let you know if I hear any big signs from Barrett, good or bad. Generally, she's been cagey, and that's certainly better than affirming bad principles as Gorsuch and Kavanaugh did. Send me your questions, concerns, comments, Horowitz at com. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.